Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Underground podcast. My name is Talia Lavore, and I'm super pumped to have you here today. Today's episode is dedicated to someone that appears to be a lovely woman who posted something on Reddit, and I thought it was just such a great question, and it highlights a lot of different things that I thought, you know what? I just can't sit here. I've got to respond to this, but I'll be typing my little fingers to nubs if I put this all into an email or a comment or a response. And so here we are again with a podcast response. So what I want to do is read her post. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it because there's so much in here to talk about. There's so much about possibility for her. There are so many um, interesting just kind of just fine tuning and things like that. And then some overlying aspects. So let's just jump in. So her question was, uh, or her title was success with lean PCOS after ectopic. Has anyone with lean insulin resistant PCOS had success conceiving after an ectopic? Long story short, after months of trying naturally, we were successful a year after we started our TTC journey with Clomid plus Trigger plus IUI, our first IUI in July of 2020, but ended up being ectopic. Early on, my RE mentioned he suspected PCOS, which is why he very readily prescribed Clomid, but we never really discussed it further or talked about anything diet related. Like that's a surprise. Sorry, I'll try to keep my comments to a minimum as I read, although we know I'm, I'm somewhat opinionated on these things. It was through my own research and obsession with health that I learned more about stabilizing my blood sugar. So I changed my diet up, used to be a heavy snacker, consumed tons of sweets all throughout the day. Could be total coincidence, but the first full month after changing my diet is the one we conceived. Probably not a big coincidence. Part of me does think that's the case, or at least part of it, since we were never successful trying naturally, though I ovulated fine before Clomid. And despite some months during that period of naturally trying, all pre-Clomid, that I had what seemed to be implantation spotting, light pink spotting eight to nine days post-ovulation, but never any positive pregnancy tests. We'll come back to this because that could not, may not have been implantation spotting. This past month, Ari suggested adding to my rotation, myo-inositol, CoQ10, and D3, and continue with my prenatals and probiotics, which makes me, makes me more certain of the lean PCOS diagnosis. With the above in mind of PCOS-friendly diet plus supplements, if I get an HSG done and we are all clear there, is it crazy that I feel like we should try naturally, even if it means adding Clomid to the mix? If naturally is too out there, given my ectopic, what about an IUI? After rereading, it starts with the egg and taking in all the info about PCOS between diet and supplements to successfully conceive. I could also just be stuck in la-la land of hopes and dreams, so any advice or insight is welcome. We are totally fine to proceed with IVF if we have to, especially to avoid an ectopic by lessening chances of such, which I just want to put a side note in there while I'm thinking about it, that actually there are higher rates of ectopic pregnancy with IVF. Um, why that happens is kind of a bit of a long story. We can get into that a bit, but I don't want you to think that 
you know, I've had an ectopic and if I do IVF, there's a decreased likelihood that I'll have an ectopic. That's, that's actually not the case. Um, but finishing up here, she says, but I can't get over this nagging feeling that we can conceive without an IUI or IVF. So one of the reasons I chose this, I mean, one of them is there's just so much in here that I, I want to dig into, but I get so stinking pumped up when I hear women having this instinct and this intuition that they can conceive naturally. I believe, I truly, truly believe that if you are given the guidance and the tools and the skills to figure out what is kind of impacting your fertility, what is potentially sabotaging or threatening it, how to remove or eliminate those things, and then how to naturally support your fertility. I do not care if you have failed the most advanced fertility treatments I believe that a vast majority of women can still conceive on their own. You might be thinking I'm a crazy woman and that's fine. I totally get it. But you have to remember that part of this thought process is what you have been led to believe since you even before most women even started trying to conceive, we have been bombarded with subconscious stories, beliefs, all these kinds of things that lead us to believe that we need help. And not to say that you don't need help in this journey or that there are wise people that can contribute to your experience and help you really navigate it. But I believe that women feel like they have to have these treatments. Yes, there are certain situations where very honestly, the use of fertility treatments may be very helpful or even necessary. But I would say that that is actually very low. I love that this woman is sitting here and thinking, I've got this nagging feeling. Like, why couldn't I do this on my own? And my, my opinion is, you go, girl. Listen to that. Listen to that. I have worked with many women who have failed fertility treatments and have then gone on to conceive naturally. I have one woman right now who uh, had, I believe, three miscarriages. They were all conceived with fertility treatments. She, We worked together. She conceived spontaneously on her own. She had a very beautiful, amazing pregnancy with no complications. She delivered a gorgeous baby girl who recently turned one, and she just reached out to me to let me know that she is pregnant again. This is possible. Again, you probably have heard this story before, but I say it all the time because I feel like we need to know that it's possible. But I worked with a woman who was an OBGYN who had five failed embryo transfers, all with normal PGS, normal babies, and went on to conceive on her own at the age of 38, spontaneous, again, a beautiful, healthy, non-complicated pregnancy, and her little boy is now two years old. This can happen. So you are not crazy. You are not living in la-la land if you think that you can do this on your own. I love that you're hesitant to go to IVF. I think more people should be hesitant to go to IVF. Again, not that it's not a viable option, but IVF is not going to solve problems when you don't even know what those problems are. Okay, so that brings me to some of the things that you uncovered. So first of all, 
I find it interesting when doctors hint at PCOS, but they don't really tell you where they got that diagnosis from. So you very well could have lean PCOS. I don't know, but it'd be very challenging for me to let you know if you have that just clinically, just based on symptoms, or even with an ultrasound. I'm assuming that your provider saw some evidence of little tiny cysts on your ovaries and said, okay, you have PCOS. Um, I don't even know if you could, if you do have lean PCOS because you responded, it looks like well to stabilizing your blood sugar. You said you used to be a heavy snacker, consumed tons of sweets, things like that. But if you remedy that, you're going to just take care of this blood sugar stabilization. You're going to balance some of your metabolic hormones and that's going to benefit anyone. So I don't know if, have you had labs done? Have you had anything done that shows that you have elevated blood sugar, that you have an elevated fasting insulin level? There are other labs too that I recommend that will give insight into that. Not to say I am, by the way, um, I believe that lean PCOS is way underdiagnosed. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about lean PCOS and the impact it can have on fertility because when I walk people through my egg program, we go through determining how, how do you know really what is going on with your eggs, what the quality is, what your ovarian reserve is, all different things like that. And one of the things we're looking for is PCOS or lean PCOS. Another thing I'd be interested in knowing is what is your AMH level? Do you have an elevated AMH, which could be an indicator of PCOS, but not necessarily you know, lean PCOS, all these different things. So um, I think that the changes you made to stabilize your blood sugar, I mean, these are just general, really great changes for health and longevity. They're going to do nothing but benefit you. So I'm so proud of you. I love that you're dedicated. I would say I just see a lot of patterns with the women that I work with and myself because I am that same person. I went through the same thing with my infertility journey, but the women I work with are so driven, so intelligent. They do all their own research. And so if we can just get you the right tools, you can do fabulous things. And you took that into your own hands by looking into this. You took that little hint of something that they gave you and you went deeper. Now, if you did have lean PCOS, there are other tests that I think are very, very important, like a next level test, because some people with lean PCOS actually have um, some genetic changes that impact your ovarian reserve and impact pregnancy success naturally or, spon um, or with fertility treatments. So there's more to dig into there. But before we even go to that, um, it'd be very interested to, interesting to see, do you truly have lean PCOS? Again, the changes you made are phenomenal. I would recommend them to anybody. They are only going to support your fertility and your health. And so that was excellent. I don't think it was a coincidence that that was when you um, were successful. The other thing that's interesting to me, and you're going to hear about this from me time and time and time again, is why do doctors give people medication like Clomid to stimulate ovulation when you are ovulating normally and on your own? This drives me bazooka freaking Joe. What is that helping? So there are some women 
who have PCOS and who are anovulatory, they aren't ovulating on their own. Now, my ideal situation would be, okay, what's going on beneath the surface, whether it's, you know, elevated testosterone, or as you mentioned, insulin resistance, and then elevated insulin. What's happening beneath the scenes that's causing that? Because if we can regulate that, we can almost surely lead you to a place where you're going to ovulate on your own. Most doctors aren't going to do that. So if someone's in ovulatory, they give a medication that will induce ovulation. But why are we doing it when someone ovulates on their own? It drives me nuts. The answer is either number one, they saw evidence of PCOS and they think, oh, this is what I need to give this person, even though she's ovulating on their own. Or the most common answer is they literally follow most of the time a checklist approach where the first step, no matter what you do, is Clomid or Fermara, either with timed intercourse or IUI. It's the first step everybody does, no matter where you come in on this continuum. And that's the most likely thing. I don't like Clomid. I will say this over and over and over again. If you're going to use something for ovulation induction, I like Fermara much better. Clomid thins the lining of the end of the uterus. It thins the endometrium. Um, I don't like it. I don't know that that was necessarily at play here because your pregnancy occurred in the tube. You had an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, but it drives me nuts when doctors give women who are ovulating on their own Clomid. If you are ovulating on your own, you don't need ovulation induction. There is, are some circumstances, I will say, that Femara can be used even if you're ovulating on your own, but that is for other reasons. It's not to induce ovulation. It's only for specific reasons. So in my opinion, I would not do ovulation induction at all here. What I would do, so I don't know how you were measuring uh, ovulation, how you were predicting or confirming it, I am 1000% obsessed with OvuSense. Um, I just think it is the most accurate method to predict and confirm ovulation. It's a little bit of an investment, but it is so, so, so worth it when you're talking about, you know, one or $200 in a year versus 20,000 with uh, one round of IVF. So I would definitely do that. Even if you feel like you're pretty confident, I have worked with so many women who knew they were ovulating, but they actually were off in their ovulation um, timing. And this was a game changer for them. So I would definitely recommend that. Now, I want to come back to what I was saying earlier when you were mentioning how you were having these months when you were trying to conceive naturally that you had what seemed like implantation spotting around day eight to nine. Now that very well may be, and you could have had very early pregnancy losses. Um, and that's something that needs to be considered because there could be something with the immune system, with the environment in the uterus that is is keeping the embryo from implanting and establishing. The other thing to consider is that that just may be some luteal phase spotting, which could be an indicator that either your progesterone levels are too low, or what I'm finding way more often is that there's some level of progesterone resistance. Um, you could have something else going on like endometriosis that is causing progesterone resistance. So I think that could be a very, very likely thing. 
that leads us to why did this pregnancy and why did it occur as an ectopic pregnancy? There could be a couple things here. Number one, the egg around it has this amazing thing called the zona pellucida. It's almost like I, people talk of it as a shell, but when you look at it under the microscope, it actually looks like, like a intricate nest. It's amazing. This is just a big topic. We can talk about it another time, but it has so many different functions. One of which is to interact with the sperm. I believe that even though we know a decent amount about how that interacts with sperm, I believe that it's strongly involved in sperm selection, which is one of the reasons why if you're doing IVF, I actually really like conventional IVF where you put the egg and the sperm together in a little party and the, the egg naturally selects the best sperm. This is a bit of a tangent and I can, I will go on into this in greater detail at another time as well, but ICSI in every circumstance has not been shown to improve live birth rates. I don't care what circumstance you throw at me, I will find the studies to prove that. And I believe it's because there is something magical happening. The egg has some intuition or senses that it can select the best sperm. And this happens with natural conception or with fertility treatments. But that zona pellucida, the other thing it does is once a sperm penetrates the egg and it fertilizes the egg, so you have fertilization that happens, it actually creates this little coating around the um, newly formed tiny human to keep it so it's not sticky and to keep it covered so that you don't get implantation in the tubes. And actually the embryo hatches from that and then that then allows the embryo to implant into the endometrium in the uterus. So there could be issues with the zona pellucida and a lot of things can impact that. The other thing to understand is that there could be inflammation and kind of quote unquote stickiness in the tubes that increase the risk of uh, an ectopic pregnancy. So it's important to dig deeper into what could cause that stickiness in the tube. Um, again, that then leads to what I said at the very beginning here, which is that actually that women who undergo IVF have a higher risk for ectopic pregnancy. And the question then becomes, is it the actual IVF process anywhere along the continuum, whether it be egg retrieval or fertilization or transfer of the embryo, or is it that women who have IVF procedures done, have other underlying things that just naturally predispose them for a higher risk of an ectopic pregnancy. I probably lean to both, but I actually think maybe more so that women who have infertility have these underlying issues that are putting them at higher risk for this. Also putting you at higher risk for narrowed tubes or blocked tubes um, and then, you know, doctors will identify a block tube, but they don't ever really, th then they go, okay, well, you have one block tube or two block tube. If you have one, it shouldn't matter. If you have two, you have to do IVF. And that's that nobody goes deeper and says, okay, why was that tube blocked? Because whatever caused it to be blocked could potentially, and not even potentially is without a doubt impacting your fertility. So I wouldn't do IVF thinking that it's going to decrease your risk for, an ectopic pregnancy, another ectopic pregnancy. Of course, once you have one, you're at higher risk for 
a future one. But to me, that's because there's an underlying something happening there. Uh, most recently, I've always talked about how there are these pillars of fertility, these kind of key components that are all necessary for you to be successful in conceiving. And I've kind of been adapting that. My newest way of describing this is that you have this fertility ecosystem and at the center of it are the egg and the sperm, which then of course join together to create an embryo or a human life. And the ecosystem is the egg, the sperm or embryo and the entire environment around it, much like you would have a coral reef as an ecosystem. Um, but that ecosystem, the environment is very delicate in that it has to have a very, very specific balance to support the needs and the quality of the egg, sperm and embryo. And there are these key components that either support that environment or if they're altered or shifted or changed, they can then threaten the environment, sabotage the environment, um, create roadblocks and, and so on and so forth. And there's pretty much six key factors there. I'm going to do a whole nother episode talking about that, but I can tell you that every single roadblock exists in one or more of those key components. If you are struggling to conceive, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, if you're failing fertility treatments, if you're not ovulating, if your husband has a, sp a low sperm count, if, 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 if anything, any manifestation or any issue you are having is a manifestation of something altering that environment, which then impacts the sperm, the egg, and the embryo. Everything. You can email me and you can give me a list of 2,000 things and I can show you how they all relate to one or more of those components. And the same goes for this here. So I would say, yes, I would get an HSG done. You want to make sure that your tube is open. If it's not, you need to, it's not just because you had an ectopic, it could be other issues there because whatever caused the ectopic could cause the tube to narrow or close or be blocked on its own. And that does not mean that that can't be reversed by the way. So I would strongly, first of all, I just, again, want to commend you, this person who posted this on listening to your instincts. You are not crazy. This is not a pie in the sky dream. You absolutely can and most likely can conceive on your own. I can't say 100% all the time. But again, I believe that if you are able to get to the root issues here, to what was keeping you from conceiving in the, from the get-go, and you already started to uncover those by seeing that there were likely some blood sugar imbalances and then metabolic hormone imbalances, that alone already gave you a leg up. It was not the Clomid. It was not the Clomid. You were ovulating on your own beautifully. There's something else going on. So I would definitely do the HSG. I would go to bed every night saying, I know that I can do this. I believe it. I'm so proud of you for not just jumping straight into IVF. And again, this is not a criticism of women who do because I think it's just a matter of thinking that's the next step. This is, you know, your way of thinking, thinking of, I need to go to IVF next, not you, but the general you is just the consequence of what you've been told. 
And it's also the consequence of not having the resources available to you without digging really deep to see what's actually happening. I love my inositol. I think that's a phenomenal supplement for actually most women, whether you have PCOS or not, CoQ10, another good supplement. I will say that I thought the, it, it starts with the egg book was such a, um, groundbreaking book because it started talking about things that nobody was. But in my opinion, I feel like it's very limited. It's a good stepping stone, but it's limited and it's also not customized. It's really, really important for you to be able to assess your egg quality and your ovarian reserve properly, which most doctors don't even know how to do that. And then to basically, I call it your ovarian reserve style, basically. So I have a very, very proprietary customized method to evaluate what your ovarian reserve is, what your egg quality is, what is impacting it and then customizing your plan from there. And I can tell you it goes way beyond CoQ10 and myonositol. It needs to be customized to your unique needs. So I think you're on a very good start. Anybody trying to conceive, I would encourage to focus on maximizing egg quality. Of course, I mean, your success is dependent upon egg quality, sperm quality, the embryo that those two create, and then the environment. That is it. It sounds simple. It's simple to kind of say it like that way, but obviously there are a lot of complexities within that. But I think you've made some phenomenal steps. I'm totally not anti, although I do, by the way, encourage you to correctly check your D3 so you know how much D3 to take. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not one of those people that say, oh, you only need to take 400 IUs or anything like that. But I think that properly checking D3 um, can guide you on how much D3 to to take. So, um, I'm totally not against the myonositol and the CoQ10, but I would definitely be hesitant to start on the Clomid. I would be hesitant to go with any fertility treatment without knowing what's going on beneath the surface. Do you truly have lean PCOS? How do we know that that's the case? And if you do truly have it, you need additional testing and then you can customize how you approach that. Um, and again, I love that you're listening to your instinct. Uh, In the very near future, I am going to be talking about my egg program that I've (laughs) been working on endlessly for, I mean, it's been many years, but specifically for for two years. Uh, We're talking about thousands of hours of research that I put into this thing, but I'm so excited about it. So I'll keep you posted on that. But if you are the one who posted this and you want to reach out to me, um, you can reach me at Talia at TaliaLavore.com. Uh, Again, I will be dedicating time to proving to you that anything you are going through, any label, any diagnosis, any struggle, any anything you are going through, I will prove to you that it is a manifestation of some issue with this ecosystem and that there is always a way to go in there to address that issue and then further support your fertility. And that when you do this, the vast majority of people will be able to conceive naturally. I believe it with my whole heart. And at a minimum, it will improve your success with fertility treatments and decrease the amount of treatments you have to have and so on and so forth. So I hope this was helpful for my friend here on Reddit. I will be sending you this podcast. If you have specific questions, if you'd like me to talk about certain topics, please reach out to me at Talia at I want to answer your unique 
questions, address your unique needs, and empower you, give you the tools to do this because you can. It is not a pie in the sky thing. It's not. You can do this likely on your own as long as you have the right resources and tools and i'm dedicated to getting those for you if you have questions comments about this please reach out to me thank you i I just can't get over how 28 minutes flies by i appreciate you hanging in there and listening to this i hope it helps you and i can't wait to hear your feedback and to see you in the next episode bye